0: All right, what is up, Crypt Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. And today's show is sponsored by Gods Unchained, the digital card game that offers true ownership to players. So, so gamers, listen up here. Uh, Cards are minted on Ethereum, uh, meaning users can trade, sell, and program their assets however they like. And actually, a new expansion set just got released with limited edition cards and ERC-20 chests available for sale. And if you miss out, you can hunt down these or other previously sold-out chests on third-party sites like Uniswap. Uh, This game is the real deal, guys. It's helmed by uh, experienced TCG legend Chris Clay uh, of Magic the Gathering. Uh, So, guys... It is fun, it is engaging, it is competitive, and it has more NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, right, than any other Ethereum game on the market. So you could support the channel, and you could try the game out for free, just click the link in the show notes. Before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101Insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy to understand way. Uh, And we have a weekly newsletter that goes out in quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to crypto101insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, It took 11 months of our lives to write All right, all you wonderful, good freaking citizens here of Crypt Nation. Welcome back to another high-caliber episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. Pete, what are you doing over there, brother? We are in the studio. Life is good, but give me some updates here before we dive into our awesome guest.
1: We are just entering Q4, and I like to look back and reflect on things. You know, history is often... Uh, an indicator what the future may bring and this is without a doubt the craziest year the wildest year of all of our lives the ups have been so high the downs have been so down it's almost like life itself is rebasing so (laughs) we needed to bring on some rebase experts and uh, get an update on another particular project that has also had some crazy ups and downs this year so i'd like to welcome the co-founders of ampleforth brandon isles and evan quo Welcome to the Crypto 101 Podcast.
2: Thanks for having us, guys. Yes, I'd be here.
0: (laughs) So, Brandon, we had you on uh, about nine or 10 months ago, and Ampleforth was below a million-dollar market cap. Uh, And then 2020 happened, and we saw a lot of changes. I think the market cap had hit almost as high as about $600 million, maybe a little bit more, and a lot has changed. So catch us up. Uh, I want to know about some key milestones that you guys have hit in 2020 since we last spoke
3: sure yeah so this, this summer was a huge sort of eventful time for the project um, uh, in June was a kind of big turning point so June is when we launched uh, our, what we call the geyser program which is um, a liquidity mining program um, so uh, you know after that launch we saw a huge influx of you know attention and, and users and growth just like you talked about um, and, you know, us as a kind of small team, we were, we were previously kind of a small, nerdy, academic style project that lots of people didn't really think about very much. And we suddenly were in a position where we were trying our best to keep up with everything as it was going on. Um, and so that's been the kind of story of, of our project since then. Um, yeah, real quick on what that geyser was, was, um, it was a way, it was like a open participation rules-based uh, way of distributing tokens out into the world, right? So, we call it liquidity mining because it's we view it as sort of our version of Bitcoin's proof of work, um, or like miners on a Bitcoin system. Um, and so, the the way it operates is anyone can sort of uh, get uh, a drip of uh, ample tokens from the liquidity mining fund by providing liquidity on chain on centralized exchanges. So, uh, I that think that sounds that's awesome. The, uh, yeah, it was, it was huge, huge success. I think part of what it what it did was it created like a sort of defined point in time where lots of people could get to the same point, you know, look at the project and then see other people looking at the project also. And so I think that gave a lot of people the confidence to act um, because they could see everyone else doing it. Whereas before, it was sort of like a trickle of people here and there. And there wasn't much going on, so there wasn't much for them to do. So I think that that was sort of the, the sort of linchpin of of what caused a lot of the, the activity.
2: Yeah, I would say like another way to put it is we went from, like Brandon said, this tiny nerdy product that nobody really knew about. And we had a hard time explaining to people to something that's been cloned like 10 times over now, right? And now people know what it means to rebase and they have all these expectations for what that might do to the growth of a product or project. And here we are.
0: It was one of those moments for me personally, Um, you know, I was trading Ampleforth a little bit back in the day and never, you know, for me, I was just curious about it. And it was the only coin, it was the first time in crypto when I had, you know, taken my coins off the exchange, put them in my MetaMask and woke up the next day and had a different amount of coins. So I was like, wait, what the heck, what just happened? And like that for me was the moment when I realized what rebasing was. And it was, you know, after I had spoken to Brandon And still was trying to get this idea in my head of, you know, non-dilutive and staying every, everybody stays equitable with their percentage in the network and trying to understand what that meant. But then I realized it's like, oh, wow, the supply changes, but my percentage ownership in the entire, you know, equity of this, you know, quote unquote equity of this entire network doesn't change. Um, And that was a really big moment for me. And then, like you said, uh, you know, a bunch of projects came off and kind of did the same thing, some successful, some, you know, catastrophic. Um, but what are, but what are, I'm curious about what are some of the most surprising things that you guys learned this year when you guys launched your project, like you said, it was a small academic project, just, you know, a small team, everybody working and then you launch it into the wild and then the market picks a hold of it. and, And what are just, what were
2: some surprises and some twists and turns? Well, definitely the fact that the, you know, the project kind of got out on, on 4chan and, and rebasing became much more than what we expected it to be. So for us, it's a mechanism for increasing or decreasing the quantity of tokens in user wallets systematically and universally. But it also became this cultural phenomenon, right? Because it happened in this predictable fashion every single day at you know, 7, 7 p.m. Pacific. Um, it became something that people on Telegram started to kind of rally around and count down to and, and send a bunch of memes kind of in advance of, and, and so it became a bit of a cultural phenomenon and that allowed a lot of other people to continue to join. And so, you know, people started to really pile in with kind of different levels of understanding around, you know, what it is we were doing here. So like you said, you had this kind of, you know, aha moment where, where you noticed that the number of coins actually changed in your MetaMask wallet and no transactions had been sent. Uh, and that was itself cool. Um, And when combined with the geyser, that became a really kind of compelling reason to buy more Ample or to like invest in the liquidity mining pools. Um, But from there, the question of like, well, why might you want a coin to act that way as opposed to being like Bitcoin where, where price just moves up and down? Why would you want supply to move up and down in that way? Became a question that was kind of not fully answered. There was such a frenzy around like, oh, my God. It's compounding in value. I have to buy now. If I think I've missed the opportunity. And for project, it's like, oh my God, there's a cultural phenomenon being created. I have to clone it now or I miss the boat. All of this kind of speed really kicked in. And I think it brought in this era of like high speculation and high growth for DeFi. It was kind of the beginning of the latest wave. And and now we've seen it kind of evolve into vegetable coins and. And clones. And, you know, it was surprising for us to see that cultural phenomenon, but it was also surprising, I guess, um, to see that many of these projects are are doing things like executing variations of the Ample Ampleforth protocol that Brandon and I had talked about, like, you know, as long as two years ago. Uh, and we kind of even modeled out a lot of these outcomes. And so uh, it's, it's, it's cool to see some of these uh, thoughts that we've had in the wild. Um, and, you know, largely they're playing out The way we expected them to. But the other thing that we didn't see, or I didn't, I guess there's three things. So number one, the cultural phenomenon. Number two, the fact that the quantity theory of money, this thing that we talk about in economics as being only true, maybe in the long run, not true in the near term, is in fact true on these automated market making platforms like Uniswap, where as soon as you adjust supply, price correspondingly adjusts, right? That happens in real time on these AMM platforms that wasn't something we had assumed to be true and it's not something that economists would generally assume to be true in the near term and it would
0: mean it kind of confirms the inefficient market or the
2: efficient market It's just this weird thing normally like you know you when supply changes like say say you had a crop of wheat in your backyard it rained you suddenly have more wheat you don't expect the price of wheat to immediately change right you have to take your new wheat and put it on the market and say I'm willing to sell it for X dollars. And the whole market has to eventually adjust to that information. You don't expect price to instantaneously change. But on Uniswap, price does instantaneously change. And that that is another kind of factor um, in this. And then lastly, the thing that I think is really surprising and new is just the power of decentralized governance or you know, I guess the trend of decentralized governance, um, how people are really rallying behind that and creating value uh, around that. These are all kind of, I don't know, we, we, we've always thought to design a system that has a minimal amount of governance, right? As opposed to a maximum amount of governance that's like in the hands of the community. You want something that's like, doesn't require a great deal of governance. That's kind of our view, but this kind of opposing view, which I think I understand um, and appreciate quite a lot now um, is coming into fruition where it's like, you want maximum control in the hands of the community. Um, and so these are all just kind of really interesting movements.
3: I think uh, one thing that surprised me was just the speed at which um, community and capital was able to mobilize. That was also part of the scariest part, too, because um, we, you know, from talking with various people, uh, we've gotten some comments like, "Okay, the conversations around Ample are actually the closest to the conversations that I remember having back in 2011, 2013 around Bitcoin, like around the Thanksgiving dinner table. People trying to figure out what this thing is, where the value comes from, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, we sort of um, issued some tweets sort of in a tongue-in-cheek cheek fashion before saying, hey, you probably shouldn't buy apple unless you have studied it for two weeks. Like that was kind of, kind of supposed to be humorous, but not completely off the mark either. And so to see um, the amount of people participating um, as quickly as they did, and a lot of them not seeming to really understand the underlying mechanics, I think surprised me the most uh, and, and took us off guard. You know, it was maybe the, the scariest thing for us to, to watch.
1: It's been a very fascinating financial experiment uh, all around. I remember when uh, Brandon came on the podcast and Bryce and I were talking about it afterwards. I was like, well, I'm not sure about investing in something that's designed to be a stable coin, essentially. Because the idea is uh, it's almost like a big bang and the center of gravity is $1. And its supply is going to decrease and increase to try and get that price closer to a dollar." That was my understanding of it uh at the very very beginning and I said like, well I don't know if I really get it uh but you know we'll check it out and we'll see we had no idea that we would see a 50% swing in either direction sometimes greater um and of course that's caught the eye of many many people so what is some of the reasons that this incredible volatility exists And will that volatility decrease over time as it's on more exchanges, or more people participate, or is it really just a timing thing that people who have studied it for two weeks can take advantage of? Where is it now? Yeah, I mean, I think
2: this is one of those things, again, everything happened so quickly, people went from thinking we're these geeky, you know, academic engineers developing a stable coin to then finally understanding the mechanism behind it. But the why is also important. And one of the things a lot of people get wrong is they think it is designed to be stable because a price target exists. When that's really not quite the, you know, the purpose of it. It the price target is a goalpost that we put in the ground because the system needs to know whether there's more demand than supply or less demand than supply. I don't really know that there's any other way to gauge that other than having a price target. So it's more of a means to an end than an end itself. So Um, it's a way to tell the system whether we need to increase the supply of ample or whether it needs to decrease the supply of ample, uh, not necessarily a goal in itself to just kind of remain fully stable. As you, as you saw, there was a great deal of kind of value appreciation as a result of this so-called kind of stable protocol. Well, it's because it wasn't designed to be stable anyways. Um, and, and some of the history behind like, um, what motivated this design actually kind of reaches much further back than Bitcoin even, um. Early on, Brandon and I were really sitting in a room, scratching our heads, um, trying to ask what the application of, of blockchain technology even really was. Um, we kind of came to this soft conclusion that it was, the, the opportunity was to create new monies, right? That's what the Bitcoin protocol had achieved. It it was able to articulate scarcity in a purely digital context. And it did so in kind of a censorship resistant way. And, and it did so at huge concessions, right? It was slow, not very usable. You know, it went to, it made grave sacrifices to achieve that. And so the next question for us was like, okay, now that we understand what the opportunity here is like, what, how would you design a better money? And so we sought out some academic advisors and, you know, basically they said like, it's kind of like a digital gold, right? Um, and it'll run into some of the same issues that gold runs into. And there aren't many issues by the way, but when you have kind of a fixed supply asset, uh, you run into problems if you try to use it as the cornerstone or build, or a key building block in a new banking ecosystem right so for example um under Bretton Woods uh we had dollars that were redeemable for gold by central banks and foreign governments now people were still paying for coffee using dollars like you know wages were denominated in dollars right goods and services were denominated in dollars but the base money the collateral asset the building block money that connected this system was gold um and what happens when you have a system like that is um Some shock in in demand or supply can lead it to kind of um, go into kind of a a deflationary spiral, right, in some circumstances. So, for example, under Bretton Woods, the dollar was a reserve currency, just like the dollar is today. And so lots of people outside the United States were demanding dollars for their economy to function. And the rate of demand for dollars um, outpaced the rate at which we could actually obtain the gold to back those dollars, and what happens in a situation like that is the price of gold starts to skyrocket, which further increases people to hold on to their gold, right, um, rather than spend it because they think it's going to be worth more the next day. So in these scenarios where um, really what the system needs is more of the base money, um, the incentive is actually to withhold the base money, which can cause the system to collapse. And that's why we left the Bretton Woods um, gold redeemability standard. And so we asked our academic advisors, and we kind of did a bunch of research ourselves and said, well, what kind of asset would we have been able to swap for gold one for one under Bretton Woods and still function? And you know, it's not Bitcoin, right? So even under ideal conditions, if we took gold out of the equation as the base money and put Bitcoin in, we'd be facing exactly the same dilemma. What we would need is an asset that's like gold, except for supply elastic, right? So something that runs automatically, um, that you know, operates based on a set of rules, um, but that is elastic so that you, it doesn't run into a liquidity crisis. And so from the get-go, we were envisioning Ample as a building block asset, right? And so this is something that people often get confused because in today's world, the base money is also the exchange money, right? So the paper money that we use as the outside money or, or base money of, of you know, the US dollar it can also be used to exchange for goods and services, but not so long ago that these things were different. And I think it's, it's kind of an interesting analogy, because if you think about crypto today as a new generation of precious metals, then you can kind of think of DeFi as this new generation of banks that's being created to trade and borrow against um, these precious metals. And so we're kind of faced with that same building block dilemma again today. And so I guess it's a long-winded way of answering your question, which is like, it's not designed to be stable. It's designed to be a building block for a new generation of digital banks. Right.
0: And one of the cool things that I like to think about is just it has a completely different footprint than a lot of the other coins. Like, If you look at the charts, like you know, Pete and I, uh, Aaron and I are trading uh, pretty often, and you see most of these charts have very similar patterns. But the Ampleforth chart has a completely different pattern. It's just extremely uncorrelated. So that's what makes it very attractive as like a, a way to de-risk your entire portfolio. But, you know, Brandon, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the games that these traders are playing. Because in my mind, when Ampleforth goes above a dollar and you start to get more supply on the market, you would think that that would cause the price to want to rebound back to that base of, you know, a dollar. And that's probably the idea. But what's happening is traders are using that push above a dollar, taking it, at, taking all the momentum and driving it up, driving it up, driving it up, because they know that the more that they have every day at 7pm, they're going to get more, right? They're going to get more, they're going to get more, they're going to get more, and they're not going to be diluted uh, with that. And so it, it really does have like a, a really interesting characteristic, but maybe you could just talk about some of the market dynamics that you're seeing that you might find interesting and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, so honestly I can't I can only guess it it some of these. Like some some of them you can see, but um I don't I can't claim to have complete visibility over the entire marketplace. I don't think anyone can. Really. Right. But there are some patterns that we've been able to sort of you know point to since last summer. Um you know, shortly after the liquidity mining program, a lot of there was such a huge influx of people coming to the system and trading. Um, we did see um a very large growth of trading activity as well. Right. So um before we launched the program, we were pretty far. We were a very small pool on Uniswap. Our goal was to be in the top ten pools, um, and so we needed to be to have about a million dollars of liquidity together back then. Um, you know, the the high point of this project, and you know, we had uh, almost a hundred million dollars of liquidity in the Uniswap pool, um, and we were also representing you know over fifty percent of the trading volume of Uniswap for for a long period of time too. And then you know, Uniswap as the you know, third biggest user of gas in Ethereum meant that Ampl- people just trading Apple was a significant portion of all Ethereum activity for, for a good amount of time. So
0: I'm you guys are blamed for all then. those high gas fees? Oh, wow, I, <laughs> I don't think
3: we are anymore, <laughs> but but for a while, yeah. I think, you know, maybe a lot of the DeFi craziness happens, you know, since that time period too, and, you know, things started moving a lot faster just in space at all with the way the parent of development has has gone, um, and so yeah. Because the rebase was a defined point in time every day, you know, two a.m. UTC, which is you know, seven p.m. Pacific or ten p.m. Eastern, for those in the U.S., um, you know, we saw a lot of concentrated activity um, and trading around that time period too. So, and there were lots of different you know strategies people would do. They would try to you know buy before the rebase and sell afterwards, or you know even front run that and sell before the rebase or buy afterwards. Um, we actually saw it sort of like flip a couple of different times where people were trying to you know, react to what other people were doing. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think there, there's a big group of people who are active traders and there's also a big group of people who are uh, more passive you know, holder types as well. So that's one cool thing about the project is that um, you're not penalized for being a holder, right? This the same way you weren't with Bitcoin, right? It's because it's non dilutive if you own, you know, 0.1, percent or whatever percentage you'll always own that until you decide to make a transfer. And so the, the trade, the active traders um, are sort of competing with, with each other. So they're playing a different zero sum game where if they're actively trading, if you come out ahead, you might increase your percentage ownership, but if you come out behind, um, you might decrease your percentage ownership. So some people care about percentage ownership. They're tend to be like long-term supporters of the project. Um, Other people are, you know, only pay attention to like dollar denominated gains and losses, you know, on the order of days. And so I think there's very different profiles of people who are um, participating.
2: Yeah. But to your point, it does have a different movement pattern that became kind of the thesis of our paper. So originally we designed this to address kind of, you know, the problem of gold and fixed supply commodity monies as a base money for a banking system. But then upon analyzing it further, we're saying, well, because the value accrues directly to people who are holding the coin um this might resolve, result in a completely different movement pattern which would make the ample a really interesting asset to hold um for diversification so um then it was just like okay cool let's see what happens right let's let we have the thesis that um it introduces a new set of incentives and if it's correct then you know it'll finally start to decouple from bitcoin and and folks just regular folks who buy and hold crypto can start to sprinkle it into a basket of assets and it can be useful for that reason and that part has largely played out to be true. So we had a follow-up study, I guess, probably since you last spoke with Brandon with the Gauntlet Network, who did kind of a historical correlation analysis and also kind of a movement pattern analysis. And, you know, all the indications um, are pointing in the right direction, which is that, cool, this thing can actually move differently. And that's, even that has kind of a historical analog. You know, we had all these precious metals in the past and they had clear economic functions. They were being used kind of as a check against inflation or a check against boom-bust cycles but there were many of them it wasn't just like gold or variations of gold it wasn't as though we only had gold bars and gold coins and gold bracelets we had gold and we had silver we had copper and we had all these other things that you could hold in a basket and um that that was kind of one of the goals with the ample too, just to kind of be the first actually different cryptocurrency that moved differently and we're kind of happy that that, that has happened which is pretty cool
1: this question isn't on the agenda, so we can strike it if you guys don't want to answer it. But just following up, uh, what Evan was just saying is how you, it moves so uniquely. Do you guys want a, a riff for a little bit on why all these other coins are so correlated, even though they do vastly different things from Bitcoin? Also,
2: yeah, I mean, it's something that we have, you know, thought about. Because, for example, like Litecoin has a different emission schedule than Bitcoin right why should it move in perfect lockstep like ethereum is a decentralized global computer not a digital gold why should it move perfectly like bitcoin like basic exactly. attention token is a a browser right it serves a totally different function why should it move exactly like bitcoin and the theory that i came up with and i think or brandon and i i mean the theory that like stands out in my mind that i don't know how to test is that like Bitcoin is the big player in the game and, you know, a lot of the trading activity is systematic and, you know, we know, um, it's kind of like if you're an algorithmic trader and you, you're trying to operate across a thousand coins and historically they've been moving in lockstep with Bitcoin, well, you'd be foolish to kind of execute a strategy that assumes that it doesn't continue to do that. (laughs) Right. And part of the, yeah, go ahead. I think
3: I think an important observation is that um, economically speaking, a lot of these tokens are functionally very, very similar, even if they might have different um, underlying utility, right? So uh, you can have a utility token like BAT or or something similar like that that has you know a use value on a particular network, uh, but as long as the you know speculative um, use case dominates the um, utility Exactional. use case, transactional yeah the transactional use case, you're going to see it operate. As is for a speculative type of asset, <clears throat> and so you, so I think uh, there is a good uh, chance that at some point in the future, the, the most successful utility tokens will be correlated with the actual transactional use case. And We're not quite there yet because there's so many speculators out there in crypto, and we don't know how long it'll take or if it'll ever go away. Because you can always, as long as there are exchanges, you can speculate on these things
2: yeah these are kind of largely monetary assets right um they are all perfectly good media of exchange right and there happen to be floating price assets and even if they have slightly different kind of offset emission schedules as long as they're as, as they're floating price assets you know they're just going to end up trading like all the mm-hmm. other floating price assets and i think yeah um one yeah. counter example of that would be the binance token that's like a, a utility token right um Except they have this kind of discretionary burn that's connected to their revenue. So if you're actively adjusting supply in response to something like that, um, then that can cause you to move a little bit differently. But with Ample, the supply changes are so um, frequent, and uh, those supply changes accrue directly to users. Um, It it does kind of force a different type of strategy altogether.
0: Lost
3: my train (laughs) of thought.
2: Awesome. Well, I I was going to pop
0: in and just say uh, while we're on the topic of correlation. Um, you know, we've seen very clearly the stock market act as a correlated, uh, act, have some correlation to the crypto markets and vice versa. Um, do you guys think that that, you know, both of them are clearly risk on assets right now, but do you think that in the future, five, 10 years down the line, whatever, I mean, th- there will be some type of non-correlation there, like some Bitcoin and crypto will start to break away because... For just anecdotally i asked this just because people like come up to me and they're like hey i like what the heck happened like in march when the stock market sold off like crypto sold off too shouldn't they have like an inverse relationship I'm like well not yet it's too small it just trades like a risk on asset when everything gets sold then crypto is going to get sold too but i think maybe down the line uh it could kind of be a hedge i don't know what do you guys think about that maybe evan you could start yeah
2: i'm That's a really important question to address here, because I think uh, in general, there might be some confusion between uh, an uncorrelated asset and an inversely correlated asset, right? Oh, okay. Right. So there's a difference between being anti-correlated to the stock market and just being uncorrelated. And so there's a great deal of history behind Bitcoin. For the first 10 years, it was just kind of not correlated with stocks, precious metals and things like that. Now, we've seen it start to kind of snap into lockstep with assets like gold. We've also seen it, you know, um, snap into a correlation pattern with things like S and P futures and stocks, right? Um, But really, I think the way I would describe it is, it's an asset that doesn't have a direct connection to traditional indicators of consumption and production, right? And it is certainly a risk-on asset. And so, I think that in a situation like uh, the middle of March, when the stock market, you know, started to collapse. Um, you want to get, the only move is to get out of your risk assets, right? And the only asset that you can buy that's not really a risk asset is dollars. You don't buy gold in that situation. You don't buy stocks. You just move into dollars, right? And then you enter into a scenario where, okay, maybe I want some risk. What kind of risk can I reasonably take, right? And maybe you're looking at like, okay, should I buy airline stocks? Well, nobody's traveling right now. Like, should I buy whatever? Like, there are things that are actually connected to these indications of Growth in various sectors, and Bitcoin isn't one of those things. So it's an interesting asset, particularly I think when things are stagnant, it can start to kind of um, grow more quickly than other things might grow because, like, it doesn't care about the cost of borrowing capital or employment rates or um, expected GDP growth rates. Bitcoin doesn't really have to adhere to those things; it doesn't directly affect it. Whereas, like, things like Apple stock, for example, might might be affected by trade sanctions and supply chain disruptions and things like that, right, that are more macro. So I think, um, you know, the function of things like Bitcoin kind of, they show their value in a stagnant economy where people are seeking additional volatility that's uncorrelated traditional indicators of consumption and production. And of course, in a bull market, everything goes up, right? So risk assets go up because people just want more volatility because the general trend is that people are buying more and more of these assets. I think in a kind of recession or kind of in a down market um when you're trying to relieve yourself from risk um people are just going to retreat into dollars and so what i'm trying to paint the picture of here is that there's a function of an uncorrelated risk asset that carries a great deal of economic value and that's not connected to it being inversely correlated or a safe haven against uh geopolitical calamity right um and, and that's what we've been talking about all the time, just like, where does it belong in a portfolio and under what circumstances does it belong in a portfolio?
3: Does that yeah, help? Which is a, a funny thing to say, because um, what, what we're sort of saying here is that Bitcoin is the most successful in periods of um, stability or stagnation, right, where there's this sort of search for volatility. But I've, we've all, all probably also heard the saying that Bitcoin is an option on chaos because when everything starts burning, Bitcoin is just going to continue to do its thing, right? Um, and so it's two different things. Maybe there is a breakpoint where the second one starts to overpower, but that's like so far down the
2: line that like yeah. everything else will matter. Not, it's so, not true today, right? So, I, yeah, I don't think that it is yet that safe haven asset, right? And even in a dire scenario, say the power goes out, you're going to want gold, not Bitcoin, because the internet's out, right? Or you're going to want milk and, you know, spam, right? So so, Water. (laughs) Exactly, water, the basics. So I think it's a really great uncorrelated risk asset. And there will be very good times for that, particularly in periods of stagnation. And for sure, when people are looking for extra volatility in times of growth, crypto is great to sprinkle in. Um, But in a crisis, um, it's not yet there.
1: Very, very well said, guys. That was super insightful. Um, You guys have had a hell of a year yourselves through all this chaos, and um, it looks like you're in good shape right now. There's a lot of things that have, as we mentioned earlier, are borrowing some of your ideas, innovating with them. What are some of the partnerships or applications that uh, are using some of this stuff that you've seen pop up so far that have impressed you?
3: I'm really excited about the um, partnership we have very soon with Balancer. So we we co-developed you know jointly with with them a, a smart pool, awesome uh, that's similar to Uniswap, but is sort of aware of uh, Ample's variable supply. Um, so I think this is a bit of an experiment. It's like we don't know exactly how this is going to impact the market, so we're going to be watching that very closely. Um, but, you know, because, you know, so for those who don't know or aren't familiar with Balancer, Balancer is an automated market maker similar to Uniswap, but it's generalized. So you can have, you know, more than two assets, you know, up to eight. You can also have different weights associated with them. So instead of being forced to have a 50-50 pool, you can have a 60-40 or 90-10 pool, for example. Um, so the way this smart pool works is, you know, when the um, ample supply changes, we can adjust the weights so that the ratio Adjusts by the same proportion. So what this does is it reduces you, um, it reduces your exposure to what's called impermanent loss as the liquidity provider, right? So it it kind of patches up one of the ways in which you can lose value versus holding the assets outside of the pool. Um, so this is this can be really interesting to see. It's going to be out there fairly soon, um, but there there is some important differences there. So the as you know Evan alluded to earlier, the price on Uniswap adjust immediately when, when the supply does. And so the, the price changes immediately to, to account for that. Um, on the balancer side, uh, in this specific smart pool at least, since the ratios change to account for that, then the price remains static. And so that leads to different sort of market feedback than existed on Uniswap. Um, and so we're really interested, I'm really interested to see how it how it behaves. I'm really excited about the potential, uh, but we do need to look really closely at how it how it impacts the market itself uh, to know, you know, what to do with that in the future.
2: Yeah, I would say categorically, um, the way Ample interplays with other kind of ecosystem players is really encouraging, right? So because it is diversified, it's uncorrelated with Bitcoin, it can be held in a basket and that would be interesting for the collateral asset use case for services like Maker or, or anything else that needs to kind of manage a basket of pure cryptocurrencies. Um, in the case of Balancer, like Brandon said, it has this ability to eliminate impermanent loss because it piggybacks off of this supply change number, which has an implied understanding of what the 24 hour volume weighted price of the previous day was built into it. And and in lending platforms, it it's really interesting because it borrows like a stable coin, right? So most people, when they borrow on things like compound, they want to borrow dollars because if they borrow anything else, say I'm borrowing like link. I don't know what my debt obligation is going to be in the future. It's kind of like if you and I shook one another's hands and said like, look, you know, if the Lakers make it to the finals, I'll, I'll give you um, 10 link, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, the price of link changes and I'm like, oh crap, my debt obligation is not what I thought it was going to be and I'm going to default. That's why most people borrow stable coins. Um, but on compound, people want to lend their cryptocurrencies because they want to get passive income on assets that they're holding and not really ready to exit their position on. With Ample, you can do that in theory, um, but it's also a reasonable asset to borrow because it has this cyclical price. You know that like you wouldn't kick yourself if you if you kind of opened a debt contract that said, like, I'm gonna pay back, you know, a thousand ample and hold it for like 10 years, right? In ten years, your debt obligation is still a thousand ample. Now that's different if you than if you're just like holding ample the asset. If you're holding the ample the asset in you know wallet, you might actually see the number of ample you own multiply. Thousandfold in ten years, but for smart contracts and for contract denomination, it's really useful. So it's cool in that it's the first um, uncollateralized cryptocurrency that can be used for debt denomination, and that's becoming a really big part of DeFi today. And so we'll be pushing forward some efforts there as well. Um, we're excited about that as well.
0: It's it's definitely the podcast that um, Trump and President Xi don't want. America or China to hear because the the game that they're playing right now is print more money and to devalue the currency in order to devalue the the debt that they owe one another. And so in in this situation, you know, ample as a denominator of debt, you can never dilute that debt essentially, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Very fascinating. Guys, we don't have much longer. We want to ask you guys a couple closing questions. Um, But before we dive into the closing questions, I want you guys to to try and each give me your best definition of impermanent loss because this is a very new concept. Uh, We get asked it all the time, just in the DeFi circles and stuff. So uh, I'd love to to source your guys' individual definitions of what that really is.
3: So I can give an example, Um, even just in regular markets, right? So the way um, Uniswap works is there's two pools of assets and quotes a price based off of the relative size of those pools. Um, That's completely uninformed about the state of the outside market, right? So say you're a, a market maker on the New York Stock Exchange, right? Um, and you're selling rice. Um, you're going to quote a certain price based off of the, the market price of what rice is. today. And then say some um, some news comes out that a geological event wipes out half of the rice fields and suddenly the supply of rice is uh, a quarter of what it used to be, right? Um, you're going to use that information to update the the price at which you sell rice. Um, But Uniswap doesn't do that um, on the whole with with assets, right? So if the outside price of um, say rice on Uniswap changed, it would continue to sell its inventory, it below the market price until um, it walks along the curve, the difference of the two pools to reach the equilibrium price of the outside market. So during that whole time, it's selling its inventory for cheaper, than it should. So that's what impermanent loss is.
0: Interesting. Okay. I kind of like it. Evan, you want to take a crack at it?
2: I feel like that was about as good as my understanding of impermanent loss is. I mean, there's actually a couple of really good blog posts that we can kind of circulate here and attach that I think are pretty authoritative on how to calculate impermanent loss. Um, but I feel like awesome. um, that, that was, that was pretty close. Brandon.
0: Perfect. Well, guys, uh, we really appreciate your time. A couple quick questions to, to close us out. Um, and these are just to get a little bit of color around who you guys are and what makes you tick. But uh, we'll ask, uh, I'll ask Evan this question. Um, Evan, of all the people that you kind of run across in the crypto space, tell me about wow. one person, one person that has really inspired you, motivated you, given you
2: some nugget of an idea that was uh, really inspiring. I mean, hands down, like the one person that has influenced me personally, and I know I know this is probably true of Brandon too from the from the beginning of this project has been Joey Krug. So, you know, before he even so Joey is chief investment officer at Pantera, but prior to that he was also the founder of Augur. And before you know, we had raised any money from Pantera, we started to kind of ask him a lot of questions, maybe even six months before we even started working seriously on any sort of cryptocurrency. And he led us to a lot of really, really valuable research and it has kind of shaped the way I think. And I think um, it really had a huge uh, impact on what we ended up building. And he continues to be a very, very solid advisor for us. Just a really, really high horsepower mind.
1: Yeah, definitely. He's one of our favorite guests and uh, keynote speakers on our summits. So we're really grateful any chance we get a, an opportunity to dive into that guy's brain. Super, super helpful. And then lastly, Brandon, this question is for you. If this was the first podcast someone getting into the space heard, what would you want them to know?
3: Um, I would say uh, do your own research research. Uh, because a lot of the first ways people interact with um, any part of crypto is usually by buying something. Um, uh, So before you do that, understand what it is you're actually acquiring, (laughs) right? So there's, there's a a saying in in poker. I don't know if you guys are poker players. um, If you look around the table and you don't know who the chump is, it's you, right? If you are trading actively in crypto and you don't know what it is, you're, you're actually trading then you're the person who might get the short end of the stick when that comes around. So, um, I think that's just important. Not everyone has to interact with crypto, but from a trading speculating point of view either. Um, a lot of people would just love to build and crypto is a great playground to build a lot of things. And so if, if that's uh, who you are, I'd say, just get your hands dirty and do something because you got to start somewhere. Um, even if it's not, even if it doesn't turn out to what you were hoping it, for it to be, um, it gives you skills, knowledge, and it can get you um, friends but with other people in the space that might turn into something else down the line.
0: Couldn't agree more, guys. Those are awesome closing answers. Do your own research. Know what the heck you're getting into uh, and get involved. Uh, so guys, thank you so much. Uh, we will circulate, uh, Evan, those notes on impermanent loss in the show notes. Uh, all your Twitter handle and you know Telegram stuff will be in there as well. So guys, you go and have an awesome week. Uh, and we hope to talk with you guys again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering
1: professional-grade supplies backed by product experts.